So until about a few days ago, no one knew what my message title was for today. Probably most of you who read the weekly didn't know that until the weekly came out. So I got a gift this past week on Tuesday, which is to say before anyone but myself knew what the message title was. The thing about this gift is that it was given to me this past week for my birthday the week before. But it was actually bought for me a whole year and a couple weeks ago. It was bought for me for my 40th birthday, but the person who was going to give it to me didn't really see me much at all last year. And so they gave it to me this year for my 41st birthday. So you see what my title is, the love of power or the power of love. Would you show that next slide? I don't know if you can read that. See the little dove of peace being released. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. So. Whatever that is that caused that person to give it to me this week, grace or serendipity or just some kind of curious, spooky alignment. I don't know exactly what it was, but I like the fact that it sat there all year long until this very week when I happened to be preaching on exactly this topic. In the end, I have no desire at all to figure out why I got the gift this particular week. All I need to know and what I yearn to do is to accept the gift with love and gratitude And with just a little bit of awe that sometimes life works out in this kind of graceful fashion. I'm talking today about power, about the love of power or the power of love. And really, it's not just about power. It's about trust. What do we really trust? What do we really trust in the sense that the Hindu word for faith means not I believe or I have faith in it means I set my heart upon. That's what the Hindu word for faith, Shraddha, means. It means this is the power that I really do trust. Over a year ago, I was listening to uh, a person who's sort of a decently well-known life coach. You know, she helps people to be empowered and to make wise choices. And a lot of what this person said, I agreed with. But for this one thing, they kept going on and on and on. And on about the fact that you, we have limitless power. You have limitless power. They said unlimited power. I am not going to play center field for the New York Yankees. I'm going to die someday. I don't have unlimited power. And while this person was speaking, one name kept running through my mind. Over and over again, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. If you remember any philosophy courses way back in Nietzsche, the will to power, that's what all of Nietzsche's philosophy came down to. Life is about finding your will to power. Notice I'm clenching my fist. Nietzsche was actually blamed for everything from racism to revolution, from Nazi Germany to the counterculture of the 1960s. Nietzsche is blamed for a lot of things, none of which are his responsibility. But what he did talk about was this will to power. He talked about that the gigantic individual, what he called the Ubermensch, and that's not like Yiddish for a really, really nice person. That's German for Superman, the Superman, the Ubermensch, who inflicts literally their will to power against or over other people. Nietzsche kept going on and on and on through my mind because what the person didn't bring up is what kind of power were they talking about? 
They just said you have this power. Power to do what? What kind of power was that? It was empowerment. Yes, she was trying to share. But for what purpose and for what reason and to what end and what aim? Was it the power to hurt or harm or the power to help and to heal? One of the most controversial recent bestseller books that has been written, and to my mind, it's not controversial at all, is by a guy named Rob Bell. Some of you may have heard about that. They rolled out this book called Love Wins, and then it goes, Love Wins, Heaven, Hell, and the Destiny of Any Person Who Ever Lived. Now, they really rolled this out in an intelligent way because Rob Bell is part of what they call sort of the emergent church within Christianity, a sort of more progressive part of evangelical Christianity. And there started to be a little whisper campaign. Oh, my God. Has Rob Bell embraced? Hold your breath now. Has Rob Bell embraced universalism? (laughs) Has he embraced the idea that a large segment of the human family will not burn in hell for all eternity? I mean, I think it was Random House or HarperCollins. They started to roll it out. They were really smart because they targeted all the rollouts at evangelical Christians, many of whom were really not happy. One famous sort of well-known within that world contemporary of Rob Bell's simply tweeted, goodbye, Rob Bell. We are done with you almost, he was saying. The thing that motivated Rob Bell to write this book called Love Wins is a number of years ago, he was doing a message series on peacemaking, on nonviolence, sort of similar in some ways to what I'm doing with this message series. And he invited the members of his very, very, very large congregation in Michigan to put together a kind of art project about in response to what he was preaching about. And so one person sort of did a collage of different people who've worked for peace in our world, and they included in the collage a picture of and a quote by Mohandas K. Gandhi. And one person had taken out a notepad and taped up just under this work of art with an arrow pointed upward these words, you do realize Gandhi is in hell. That was kind of Rob Bell's response. He said, what has been done? What kind of mindset has evolved out of the kind of Jesus that I believe in? This is not the kind of Jesus I believe in. This is not my Christianity. This is not the view that those who don't believe a certain way are condemned to fiery torment and hell for all eternity. And so although he never says the word, kind of tricky that way, he never says the word, I'm a universalist. In the book, it's very clear that his sense of the nature of how he understands God does not condemn human beings to fiery torment for all of an afterlife. Actually, in some ways, some of the books are really obvious, but actually some of it's pretty cool and pretty insightful. And one thing he says actually reminds me a little bit of the meditation that we use from Thich Nhat Hanh every week. One of his chapters in Love Wins is called Here is the New There. Here is the New There. He has this sense that what he believes God is calling all of us to do, in his understanding, is for all of humanity and all, leaving no one out, all of creation to flourish. That heaven is not just some otherworldly thing at some point in the future, but right here and right now. That's how he perceives his understanding of the divine. Now, his experience of God is different from my own. For him, God is very much a person. For me, God is not a being. My understanding is more mystical. His is much more anthropomorphic. 
But we come to some very, very similar places, which is that if his view of his theology is fulfilled for the world, it really won't look much different than mine will. Everyone is invited to the welcome table. All of creation is invited to flourish and that that itself will be the fulfillment of creation. This, to me, is the kind of power that matters. This, to me, is the kind of empowerment that really makes a difference. I've learned in about the last five and a half years of my life what it means to struggle with and wrestle with the nature of power in a way I never did before. And that's because five and a half years, as some of you know, I got sober. The first thing, if you're going to get sober, or at least for me, that I had to admit is that I was powerless over alcohol. I firmly believe that. I don't believe it. I know it. And so the first thing I had to do was recognize that as many different ways as I can tell the story of my drinking, what it really comes down to is this. I was so desperate for any way to empower myself, make myself feel better, make myself feel strong, make myself feel good, make myself have self-esteem, that I was willing to reach for the least effective, most damaging way of power that I could find just for momentarily to give me a sense, okay, I can let the burden of myself drop. But that is not a power that did myself or anyone who knew me any good. In the recovery programs, there is not a doctrinal, but a functional sense of what God is. Many of you know this language, higher power. You don't have to specify what it is, but that higher power for many of us is not the kind of power that we reached to when we were still actively using. It is much more like the power of love that empowers us to live lives in which we aspire to be whole people divided against ourselves no longer. The power of love is different from the love of power in many ways, but in this particular way, it is most different. The power of love cannot make us do anything. It cannot coerce us. It does not force us. It invites us. It is not like, if you remember the exorcist, remember the scene with the casting out of the devil? The power of Christ compels you. Those of you who are Catholic probably still have nightmares about that movie. That's not like what the power of love or how it operates truly is. That also makes the power of love much more vulnerable much slower in some ways than other forms of power. And so Rob Bell's wonderful hope that I share about all creation being able to flourish and that this ultimately is the very heart and center of the universe. As much as I believe that, sometimes it is really easy to believe it in spite of the evidence that we see around us. Sometimes we see all kinds of power other than the power of love winning out. The power of love is more vulnerable, more slow, more steady. The love of power, by contrast, is more impetuous very often, sometimes impervious to critique, impervious to asking the question, how is it that I might be misusing the power that I am deploying? And for this reason, it is a temptation for all of us to fall in love with power itself and not ask ourselves the question, to what good purpose am I using the power that I am using? A few weeks ago on 60 Minutes, perhaps some of you saw this, there was 
on the eighth anniversary of the start of the Iraq war, they had an interview with a man who went under the code name Curveball. If any of you studied the run up to the Iraq war, you know that there was one source that the previous administration truly, truly trusted for its information about the idea that Saddam Hussein was gearing up for weapons of mass destruction. It was an Iraqi defector whose name I can't recall, but I remember at the time he was called codenamed Curveball. And he threw one. He was completely lying. At the time, many people believed him. But not everyone did. And so with the 60 Minutes piece, one of the things they did was they interviewed the guy who was the CIA European head, the chief in Europe. And he said there were meetings in which people debated, is Kerbal really telling the truth? There were some people who were skeptics. What happened during those meetings, this fellow said, is they were angrily, almost violently cursed at. He said the question that was asked these skeptics about Was Curveball really telling the truth? The question that he heard was, how dare you question us? That is the love of power in its most naked form. How dare you question me? How dare you? The love of power very often can shut us down wants to put reality, as confusing as it often is, in a box and label that box mine. (laughs) This is the understanding of reality. Love of power works very, very differently. I heard a most pointed example and a contrast between these two kinds of power in what I'm going to tell you now. And this is the thing that's got the dirty word in it. So shield your ears if you want to. It's from a song called How I Got Over by The Roots. You know, The Roots, they're from West Philly. And to me, they're absolutely one of the best bands going. And in this song, How I Got Over, to me, it's really kind of a a modern day answer to uh, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, about the violence within his time and all the chaos that he perceived. And the first sentence that they say, they sing, it's all about the love of power in really destructive ways. They sing, out in the streets where I grew up, first thing they teach you is not to give a fuck. And then almost an answer. That kind of thinking can get you nowhere. Someone has to care. This past week I've been reading, and I know some of you have as well, an absolutely incredible seven-part, thousands-of-word series on violence in the Philly public school system. It is mind-blowingly amazing and heart-stabbingly sad. It makes me think again and reflect back on the show The Wire, if any of you ever watched it on HBO. Season four is all about kids at risk in the Baltimore City public school system. And it made me realize that show and that year is not just good television, it's prophecy. It's letting us see what is here in our midst that sometimes we don't want to see. Now, this seven-part series, like I said, is very disturbing Recognize that many of the kids who sometimes commit these many thousands of acts of violence within the Philly public school system, even they are not monsters, and neither are they innocent little children either, but they are young human beings caught sometimes in very tangled webs of human dysfunction, looking, grasping, seeing for sometimes the only kind of power they can get 
even if the only kind of power they think that is open to them is the kind of power that makes them injure themselves or other people. The love of power in this series also gallingly shows itself in a bureaucracy that doesn't want to care, that shuffles kids around, that files paperwork, that hits their quota in the number of kids, quote unquote, in anti-violence programs, but then doesn't follow up with any counseling or care for those kids. But also, sometimes with little green shoots, you hear stories through this series that the power of love is also in work with people who take the time and make the commitment to care. There's one of the schools called Shout Cross Academy, and it is for some of the kids who are the most hardcore discipline cases. Kids who get to this school where there is heavy, constant discipline. Kids cannot even carry backpacks because they might hold weapons. Shout Cross Academy, one of the kids they interview, an 11th grader named Jamer Warner, who got to Shout Cross because he beat another of his fellow students at another school so badly that he put the kid in the hospital. Jamer Warner did an awful thing, but he's not a monster. And he says, and he can reflect about being in this new school, at the old one, you could do whatever you wanted to do. Nobody cared about what you did. Here they want you to succeed. It's not magic, this caring, and it's not sentimental. Like Valentine's Day love. It is tough, in your face, holding ourselves accountable kind of love. But it is the most real kind of love there is. And it is, as the roots would say, someone showing that they have to care. Now, I know most of us, many of us, perhaps all of us in this room, don't have kids who are in the Philly public school system doesn't mean we don't wonder about violence or worry about it. It doesn't mean that we don't think about bullying. It doesn't mean that sometimes it doesn't keep you up at nights wondering about the choices that your kids are making. And so I wanted to show you a viral video or a video that's gone viral. And perhaps you've seen it already. And it's gotten recognition for, I think, all kinds of really um, negative reasons. I want to show it to you. It's only about 40 seconds. And it's actually fairly shocking. thing to see. And actually, one of the reasons I am not a pacifist and still believe in the power of love so much and in nonviolence is that that overweight kid had been bullied a lot. There's a backstory here. And so I think the story would have been different if when he tossed the other kid to the ground like a rag doll, he would have broken his neck. He still had a right to defend himself. No one should have to sit there and simply take it over and over and over again. But let me tell you what really disturbs me. What really, really disturbs me, and that so many people have commented upon this video, don't ever mention 
There's not just two pieces here. There's a third. There's all those kids who sat there and watched. And I got to tell you, this was a setup. They knew the one kid was going to bully the other kid and smack him in the face a couple times and hit him because they were right there ready with that cell phone to record exactly what was going on. There was no one, at least right there, who cared. And so most of the dialogue about this online is he overreacted or he acted the right way. What the hell about the kids who were there who said, I'm going to egg them on. I'm going to record this so people can enjoy it. Thomas Merton, the wonderful, progressive, deeply universalist Catholic monk who died some years ago. I've quoted from in every message so far in this series. Thomas Merton wrote a book a number of years ago called, in an autobiography, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Now, whether we consider ourselves guilty or innocent, most of us, not all of us, but most of us in our lives may consider ourselves bystanders, not having violence right before us necessarily, but wondering what we can do. What should our response be? And I think it's always so important to ask ourselves and to tell ourselves that our choices do matter. If you put up that next slide. That's one of the most simple geometric forms that there is, a triangle. Imagine just the left side of that triangle as the two kids who were involved in that bullying incident. One down the bottom, the other at the top. But it's not just a straight line. There is a third point involved as well. The kids who stood by, the kid who recorded it, and those of us as well who choose to watch. To ask ourselves on a regular basis, are we being bystanders who say nothing? Or are we being the kind of bystanders who pay attention? This can be a daily choice we make to live life aspiring to nonviolence. Some of you may be familiar with the term triangulation, which is all about gossip and telling secrets about other people and the inability to creatively deal with conflict. Len, man, I'm pissed at you. I'm not. Let's pretend. Len, I am pissed at you, my brother. But Cheryl, here's why I'm pissed at Len. Len, you don't know. Cheryl, let me tell you what an SOB Len is. Let me tell you. No, no, you cannot tell Len. You can't tell Len. That, my friends, is triangulation. I do not have it within me, or at least I don't think I have it within me to have the courage to actually go to Len and say, you know what, there is some static between us. And so I'm going to take that energy. I'm going to share it with someone else. Now, hopefully, if that person is really mature, you know what they're going to say? Uh-uh. Well, I'm only going to talk to you if I know you're going to take it back to him. That is refusing to participate in something that violates another person. This is where we say we are not going to be simply bystanders. And by, I'm really, really not pissed at Lan. I just, it was, you were in my field of vision here. Sorry. But it's bigger issues as well, too. Perhaps some of you have paid attention to what's been going on in Mexico, tearing the country apart because of the drug wars. And some politicians respond to say, let's build a really, 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 really high wall so all that can stay over there and we can stay safe on our side. They can't build that wall high enough 
to recognize that what is going on in Mexico comes from here. Every time someone buys drugs illegally, every time someone purchases a gun and sells it to someone else, that's where they get their stuff to fight their drug wars from America. And so one of the choices that I am making is the next time a courageous politician speaks up, and I don't care what party they are from, the next time they speak up, and every once in a while this happens, a politician will just barely dip a toe in the water and say, you know what? Wars on drugs don't work. And the carnage is all around them. And then the rest of the politicians of so many parties pile and you say, oh, my God, that person, that guy wants our kids to be on drugs. That's courage and not being willing to be a bystander is to speak up and say, you know what? We're part of the problem, too. We are implicated as well. It is not just someone else's problem. In an old story I read by a woman named Ursula K. Le Guin, it's called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. If you remember that, maybe six, seven, eight pages. I read it when I was 16 years old. I remember the minute I had finished, I put the book down immediately and was just stunned speechless. It's kind of a science fiction tale, but there's no robots or R2-D2s or anything like that or lasers. It is about a futuristic society in which everyone, just about everyone, has everything that they need. It is a utopia. Everyone is taken care of. Everyone has health care. Everyone is happy. Everyone is fed. But for one child who lives in a dungeon prison and lives in filth and isolation and is tormented every day. Everyone who lives in Omelas knows that. And they accept as the price for their peace that this one child will be tormented. But some refuse to. And that's where the title of the story comes from. The ones who walk away from Omelas. The ones who answered what the roots hope for. Someone has to care. I hope that whatever our expressions of this care is, it is based in the firmness of our belief that the power of love truly is and can be the deepest part of the human heart. This is what Thomas Merton writing again about one of his heroes, Mohandas K. Gandhi, said that he followed Gandhi and believed in what he said because for all that Gandhi had seen, the misery and human violence that we cause each other, he still believed that deep down the human heart beat for ahimsa, nonviolence, more than it beat for violence. I do not, that's why I'm a Unitarian Universalist, believe in original sin. That's why I'm here. But I do believe that there is within us a kind of original impetuousness, a kind of original anxiety that sometimes can get so scared about our own lack of power or lack of self-esteem or lack of standing that we will, instead of choosing sometimes the more difficult path of following the power of love, instead bid our lot with only the love of power. This original impetuousness fears the empty, open, and even inviting spaces in which the power and the spirit of love can guide us. 
I firmly believe, and I have seen it over and over again, that where it is invited in, that the power of love can accompany us into the void of our own creative unknowing and help bring us to a place that we have not been before. This space to love and this space to trust is not the quickest form of power. And that is why many people in the world distrust it. But I believe with all my heart that it is the highest, the deepest power, and it is the power that the world is always waiting for. I give my final words today to a woman named Tiff Merritt, who has a song that I posted on today's spiritual spring cleaning blog. And it's called Engine to Turn. And these are her opening words. I don't know how to fix the world. I don't know how to fix myself. Seems like we both need some love. Seems like we both need some help. Maybe you could fix it with might. Maybe you could just stare it down. Seems like some tenderness could turn the whole thing around. Today, may your natural tenderness... May our ability to care and to trust, not just believe, but trust in the power of love, guide our souls and our choices and guide our hands. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit of wholeness, God of many names, who invites us. To flourish. May we have that capacity that can look on our lives honestly. Look at all the ways in which the world, which is also to say us, trusts not the power of love, but gives ourselves without thinking unconsciously over to just the love of power. May we turn to that deeper direction into the true way of empowering ourselves and all of life. May we believe with all our hearts and the work of our hands that flourishing is the destiny of this creation. May we take steps and to know that is waiting for us to make it so. Amen.